Good morning, church. It's music like that that you just can't help but sing. Wow, what glorious truths, wonderful truths to celebrate together as a congregation. Behold our King. We have a memory verse for the month of February. February is flying by, isn't it? It always seems to. It's a short month. Let's say this verse together as we memorize it as a congregation this month. By your loyal love, you will lead the people whom you have redeemed. You will guide them by your strength to your holy dwelling place. Exodus 15, 13. Very good. We are continuing today in our study through the book of Exodus. And today is our last time together in the first movement of Exodus. If you remember, we've broken the book down into three movements The first movement we named Deliverance, and we've been tracing God's deliverance of his people from Egypt into the wilderness. And as we come to our text this morning, we are at a bit of a fulcrum point. Now, fulcrum is that little point uh, on a seesaw on which the end goes back and forth. And we very easily could have made this the first sermon of the second part of our series, Or we could keep it where we decided to today, right at the end, as we continue to look at God's complete deliverance of his people from Egyptian bondage. Now, if I say the following line, see if you can finish it for me. Out of the frying pan and into the fire. Yes. Yeah, I don't have my wedding ring on today. Let me explain what happened there. Out of the frying pan and into the fire. So, uh, in the evening, when I'm getting the sink cleaned out, I take my ring off so that it doesn't go down the drain. It tends to slip off. Well, last night when I put it back on, the next task that I had on my list was to take out the trash. (laughs) You know where this is going. Yeah. So, uh, it's cold. And you know what cold, cold weather does to your skin, right? It, it makes it shrink. And I got that bag of trash out, and I took it out, and I threw that lid open, and I chucked that trash bag up over the lid, and off came the ring. And it just so happened that the trash was taken uh, on the same day that it rained. And so in the bottom of our trash can is a puddle of mystery. Yes. And where do you think the ring went? Into the puddle of mystery. And that is about the most disgusting looking, foul smelling puddle that you could imagine in the bottom of a trash can uh, in a home with seven children and two adults. (laughs) And to be honest with you, the first thing that came to my mind was I should go get Yuri. He's got no problem with this kind of stuff. But no, I thought, this is my ring. I'm going to do this. And I, I, I tipped the trash can over and let the puddle of mystery drain out into the grass. Uh, unthank- uh, un- and unfortunately, the ring didn't come out with it. Uh, so one thing led to another. And eventually, we uh, freed the ring from the bondage of the bottom of the trash can. And then we had to put the ring into a substance, uh, which it is still uh, getting clean. I don't know when I will put that ring back on my finger. (laughs) It could be a little while. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. And the Hebrew people, they are soon going to discover this. They were held in bondage. They were enslaved. They had been captured they were in a really difficult place bondage is a bad place to be but what they're soon going to discover is that the mystery of the wilderness can be as equally scary and threatening but the difference is that in the wilderness as a people caught out by God We can hold on to hope. And that's what we're going to discover as we enter our text today. We're going to learn 
how God teaches his people in deliverance to hold on to hope. Even when the circumstances seem bleak and the way seems impassable. We're in Exodus 13 and 14 today. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to that portion, Exodus 13 and 14. We're going to read this morning verses 1 to 16 to begin our time together. But before we do, let's pray and ask God to help us as we study his word. Lord, we gather as a community today, a community of believers that want to rejoice because you are marvelous. Behold our king seated on his throne, come let us exalt him. And so we gather, we gather Lord in the mystery of this land that you have placed us in. We are wanderers, pilgrims in a place that's a temporary stopping point for us. And Lord, as we gather today, we pray that you would use your word to form us, to guide us, to move us and motivate us to know how to live and rejoice in you, in the world that you've placed us in. Help us shine. Lord, we want to have effect as salt in our communities, and we need your word and the presence of your spirit in our lives to help us as we do this. So please use this time of corporate study today uh, to glorify and honor your name and to form your people into the image of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Exodus 13, verses 1 to 16. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open up womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten today in the month of Abib. You are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, land which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Verse 8. You shall tell your sons on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me, When I came out of Egypt and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals. That are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When the people are free, one of the first things that God asks Moses to do in the wilderness is to set the firstborn apart. And this act is a sign and a symbol of hope. What does it mean to be set apart in a wild and unruly wilderness? It means that the Israelites would wander but not as a people who wander without hope. The pillar of fire, that might change. The manna may no longer fall from the heavens. God's presence at times may feel far away, but through the setting apart of the firstborn, 
within every generation there lived hope. We haven't seen this word set apart or sanctify since Genesis 2, when God blessed the seventh day of his creation and made it holy or set apart. And here it is not a day, but a people who God is declaring holy. In our text, we will soon see what being set apart looks like for the people of Israel. But before we go there, what does holiness mean? What does it look like? And how does it work in the day-to-day lives of Jesus' people now? Is holiness something that we do? Or is it something that God makes us? Can we achieve it or practice it? Or does God accomplish it in and through us? Perhaps the answer involves much of both. One author's definition of holiness has recently captivated my imagination and has really made clear to me how holiness can unpack itself in my day-to-day life. Quote, holiness, an interior fire, a passion for living in and for God, a capacity for exuberance in the presence of God. There are springs deep within and around us from which we can drink and sing God, end quote. For your pastor then, this quote sums up both God's work in setting us apart and God's work in setting the people of Israel apart from the other nations of the world. We, church, have been created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared in advance for us that we might walk in them. Not walking as sulking or defeated, purposeless people. Rather, we walk with gratitude and joy victoriously. Friends, we are a people of purpose to represent Jesus, to proclaim His good news, the good news of His kingdom in this world. Our holiness, then, is foundational to our participation in Christ. It is the flame living within us that motivates us to live by love. A desire that moves us to reach those without Jesus in this world. To show and to share His life-giving news with our friends and our neighbors. Holiness is God's badge pressed upon the hearts of his people, communicating to one another and to the world, this child is mine. Set apart. I am eternally with them, empowering, equipping, and mobilizing them to accomplish all that I have called them towards in this world. And friends, when we recognize and live into our holiness, we are continually worshiping, constantly, all the time, magnifying the work of God, sharing and elevating His name, making known to the world the greatness of His love and His mercy. Moses here, in verses 3 to 16 of chapter 13, he is preaching a sermon on holiness. And, as every good preacher does, Moses breaks his sermon down into three points. So that we can witness a working definition of holiness. Remember what God did. Celebrate and live in it as he has instructed. And invite others to join in the chorus of our redemption. This is what holiness looks like. Verses 3 to 4, remember what God did. Verses 5 to 7, celebrate it. Live in it as instructed. Eat the bread without yeast. On the seventh day, have a festival to the Lord. Verses 8 to 16, teach and train your children in regards to God's redemption. 
Take a look at verses 13 to 15 again. Every firstling of a donkey you must redeem with a lamb. And if you do not redeem it, then you must break its neck. Every firstborn of your sons you must redeem. In the future, when your son asks, what is this you are to tell him? With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to release us, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn people to the firstborn animals. That is why I'm sacrificing to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb. But all my firstborn sons, I redeem. Four times in three verses, the word redeem. A word that means to cut loose, to set free, to pay a price for. So then it would appear to me that when God calls us to holiness, a big component of what he is calling us to do is to remember, to celebrate, And to share with others the hope of our redemption. And I am thankful, church, and I I believe we all should be thankful that God doesn't call us to holiness and then leave us to pursue it on our own strength and effort. He doesn't do that. He leads us. And as we move into our next section, we begin to see the pursuit of holiness is a pursuit that is led by God. Look down at verse 17 of chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. In verses 17 to 22, at the end of chapter 13, we can learn much about how God leads his people. At least four observations here. One, God leads his people purposely and intentionally. He doesn't take them towards the Philistines. Would have been A more efficient route, he takes them a different way. He's purposeful and intentional in his leading. Verse 17, he leads in accordance with his perfect knowledge of his people. He knew that if the people saw war, they would be scared and discouraged. They were already fearful and discouraged. Yes, what a wonderful thing to be freed from their Egyptian bondage. But what was next? It was a mystery. They didn't know. They were in the wilderness. There was uncertainty. There was feelings of being unsettled. God knew and he knows still today his people perfectly. And he leads in accordance with that perfect knowledge. Verse 18, as he leads his people, he equips them and prepares them and makes his people ready for their opponents and their obstacles that they're going to face. Isn't that wonderful? We don't face this world, we don't face the things that we're going through in this life without the presence of God and His equipping. And then finally, as He leads, He provides what is needed so that His people can move and travel effectively and efficiently through the world. He's giving us what we need. Look at verse 20. They journeyed from Sukkoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the desert. Now the Lord was going before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them in the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel day or night. He did not remove the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And as I was reading early in the week, my mind was continually stirred with the words of Psalm 23. Isn't it beautiful what we're seeing here? As the people have left Egypt here in Exodus, we have the good shepherd doing what the good shepherd does. 
He's leading His people. He's equipping and preparing them. He's refreshing them. His goodness and His mercy is with them every step of the way. In the pillar, God's abiding presence before, behind His people, it's seen as a a needed source of security and comfort. They are not alone. Friends, we are not alone. And it's interesting, in the middle of these verses, there's an interesting verse. Look at verse 19. We don't want to overlook the contribution of verse 19 to this narrative. The bones of one of the Hebrew patriarchs are traveling through the wilderness as well. A symbol, a sign of a covenant, a promise made long ago. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had already made the Israelites solemnly swear, God will surely attend to you, and you will carry my bones up from this place with you. If we need to be reminded, this was in Genesis. My little thing is giving me problems today. Let's see here. There we go. This was in Genesis 50, verse 25. Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to you. Then you must carry my bones up from this place. So long ago, Joseph, a father of the Hebrew people, had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He would prophesy that one day God would visit them. And when he did, the people were to take his bones And as the current leader of his people, Moses would ensure that the promise made would be a promise that was kept and that the people would honor the wishes of their patriarch. And in doing so, they're honoring Yahweh, who is the God of the patriarchs. One day, the bones of Joseph would be buried in a place called Shechem, in a portion of land that his father Jacob had purchased for a hundred pieces of silver. It would be a long time before the people would be present in Shechem, and still many obstacles stood between the people and the land of promise, not the least of which is a giant, impassable body of water. And here's a question. Can we rely on God's leading and trust in His faithfulness even when the road or the water in front of us seems impossible to navigate. How many of you have heard the phrase between a rock and a hard place? Yeah. Geographically now, this is true for the nation of Israel. Spiritually, they're in the grip of God's grace. Look at chapter 14, starting in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we've done? That we've let Israel go from serving us. So, verse 6, he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And took 600 chosen chariots and all of the other chariots, all of the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Verse 9. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, And overtook them, encamped at the sea of Piahirath, in front of Baal, Zephon. Pharaoh is coming. He's coming. Anybody in here remember the name Satchel Paige? Baseball player from long, long ago. He coined the phrase, quote, don't look back, something's gaining on you. End quote. In the case of the Hebrew people, that something was a someone. And that someone had a very large army. Pharaoh, once again, had experienced a change or a hardening of heart. 
Even after the death of the firstborn throughout Egypt, Pharaoh is still unwilling to relent. In verse 4 of chapter 14, it says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. God is about to do something that will once again direct the entire Egyptian nation on the power and the presence and the reality of the great I am. And as we've mentioned, you you have to put yourself for a moment in the shoes of the Israelites or the Hebrew people. They are scared. And this is natural. Fear comes with uncertainty. Things which are new have always been scary. That is still true today, right? It's for this reason that one generation always looks either forward or backward with disdain regarding that which they do not understand within another generation. It happens still today, right? For the older generations, new technology, new toys, the new lifestyle patterns or things that the younger people are doing today. They get meant with criticism and disdain. But the younger generations, we forget, are doing the same thing. Are they not? They look ahead. They look forward. And they get annoyed by the wariness, by the caution, by the often well-ordered lifestyles of the older generations. And they are met with criticism and disdain. Hey, did you know there are even commercials now today uh, about this very reality? There's a commercial out there today uh, joking about how to help you not become like your parents. <laughs> I saw it the other day. Some guy was out for the commercial. He was like cleaning, he was cleaning his trash can. And you know, his trash can had locks and stuff on it. Like, hey, we're going to help we're going to help you here, buddy. You know, let's, let's not be like... There was another one where they were getting out of the car to go to a sporting event. And on the way in, the guy was already talking about what time in the event they were going to leave. You know, and like, oh, okay, let's not do it. You don't need to be like your, like your, your father, you know. This has been going on for ages. This is not new to us today. The older generation looks back and says, they're weird. The younger generation looks back and says, they're weird. And everybody points their fingers at each other. And, and it's just part of it right this new things are scary and being free being freed from bondage was new this was new to the hebrew people they had great certainty when they were in bondage they could wake up every day and know for certain about certain things in their life Their schedules were set. They knew where they were living. They knew where their food was coming from. may not have been very much. They knew what they were going to be asked to do. It might have been unfair, but there was great certainty in that bondage. Strip a people of their certainty and watch what happens in the mystery. That's where we're at. We have entered the wilderness, and the wilderness is new. The wilderness is mysterious. The wilderness is unfamiliar. There's obstacles. There's all kinds of things that we've never had to see or navigate before. What are we going to do? There's no way for us to understand how to overcome these things. We fear what we do not understand and what we cannot control, manipulate, or make sense of in our minds or with our hands. And the truth today is the same as it was on the sands of the sea that the Hebrew people stood on in this text. Impassable water on one side, scary. A giant and powerful army on the other, fear. But God is in control. God's in control in the bondage of Egypt. 
God's in control in the wilderness in the mystery. He's got this. He will make a way. For today, church, fear, fear and uncertainty abound regarding the future of the church. I hear it almost every day. Jesus said, I will build my church. He's got this. Do the circumstances look bleak? Sure. Does it seem like the body of Christ, the church in America, is often between an impossible ocean and a powerful army with no way out? Yes. God is still God, is still God, is still God. If Jesus says he will do it, he will do it. We must believe, even when we cannot see. Friends, we've been called to walk by faith, motivated by love, with a powerful and life-giving mission to share. We have good news to give to the world. The church has nothing to fear. We are already victorious. That is certain, period. Jesus always keeps his promises. Amen? Imagine how different we would look and respond and live in this world if we always lived like we believe this. Years and years ago, I, I preached a sermon like this in my previous church, and I remember at the end, an older lady in the church, she came up and she says, it's dangerous to preach sermons like that. It sure is. Lord, give us faith to be strong. Lord, give us courage to be weak. Grant us ears to listen, eyes to see, hearts to love, minds to edify, bodies to surrender as living sacrifices. Create in us clean hearts. Renew right spirits within us. Make us useful. Produce your fruit in our lives. Lord, we want to shine for you in our homes, in our communities, in our schools, at our jobs. Cause us to be available, useful, and fruitful. Let us have an effect for you in this world. That's what we want. Friends, being a pastor is hard. The office staff got me a cool mug for Christmas. It says, being a pastor is easy. It's like riding a bike. Only the bike's on fire, you're on fire, and everything's on fire. <laughs> so true. So, so true. It's hard. It's hard because I can't stand up here in good conscience and tell you that this life is going to be easy, comfortable, and free from pain, hurt, or discomfort. I wish I could. I really do. And part of my job is to be here with you on Sunday mornings and look at this text together. And isn't it interesting that this text often doesn't paint for us an image of a life that's easy, comfortable, and free from pain. I feel like every week we're coming around this text and finding God's people in some pretty uncertain and difficult situations. And isn't it amazing? God always comes through. Life is scary, and it's hard, and God is good, and he is faithful. And with God, we can endure and persevere with love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And in some wild and unfathomable way that I still don't understand and never will as long as I'm here, God works through individuals and communities who accept and live like this to draw other people unto himself. The Egyptians are coming. Lord, make us brave. Cause us to stand firm. Help us to live with the quiet and steadfast confidence that only your spirit can provide. 
This was not the prayer of the Hebrew people, was it? Look at verse 10. 14, 10. Pharaoh drew near. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Should we start over? Chapter 1. Where are the eyes of the Israelites? Look at verse 10. Where are their eyes? Where are they looking? Who are they looking at? If we're always focused on threats and enemies, it's hard to remember and see and live in the wondrous salvation of our Lord. Their eyes are on their enemies. Firmly fixed on their enemies. And what are they doing? Well, sure, when we look at our enemies, when we look at the threats, what are we going to do? Be afraid. They go hand in hand. And so what happens when we're afraid? We complain. Grumble. Hey, I'm in this boat, friends. We're going to die. What have you done? We told you. What does Moses do? He said, oh, yeah, those Egyptians, those are, they're terrible people. Oh, they're a huge threat. I have no idea what we're going to do. I don't think there's a way out. I don't know. I have no idea. Let's just be scared and pack together and huddle together and hope, hope for the best. Moses has an important job. Moses' job is to redirect the attention of the people. To take their focus off the threats and the enemies and to get their eyes on the king. A redirection, a refocusing, a reprioritization. We, the church, desperately need the sermon that Moses preaches in verses 13 to 14. This is good news for us. Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be That was 30 seconds of silence. That's hard for some of us, isn't it? Whoa. Boy, you see, the message I hear in the world is a lot different than that. I don't hear a world telling me that I have to be silent. I live in a world that tells me I got to fight. I got to stand up for something. Get my point across. Make sure everyone agrees with me. Argue. 
can't imagine a more countercultural way for the church to be present in the world today than that. That. Everyone else is talking. Let them talk. What a way to shine and have effect. To live with a bold confidence that the Lord is fighting for us. That we can give up our need to make a point and be right, to win an argument or rally troops to agree with our perspectives. And we can just be silent. And that God can work through that to be victorious and bring victory. Preaching hope, not despair. Preaching love, not hate. Preaching salvation, not condemnation. Verses 15 and 16 are so beautiful. Moses began this relationship with the Lord with the staff in his hand. It's a simple tool that God used. It's a simple tool that shepherd used to guide sheep. A tool that would help sheep navigate rocky and difficult terrain. God can use the simplest of tools in very mighty ways to bring his name glory. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea. Divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God's able to tame the hearts of wild and unruly people. And he's able to tame the chaos of the waters. And as the sea waters are lifted on either side, the people are passing on dry ground. God and his people will be victorious. And Pharaoh and the Egyptians who oppose God will know that God is Lord. Moses stretches out his hand, verse 21, over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the, the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And that word wind is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 1-2, speaking of the Spirit. Friends, said to someone this week that I could come back to this portion of text. Man, Exodus 14 is a portion of the text that the church, we should, in, we should preach this and share it together in this every single year. God is able. We have nothing to fear. I know, what number one command in the Bible, what is it? Over and over and over again, it occurs more than anything else. Do not what? Do not fear. Why? Because we are a fearful people. I am a fearful person. And that fear can do terrible things to us, and it can do terrible things within our communities. For the Egyptians, I am sure they were stunned and amazed at what they saw. They pursued the Hebrews on the same dry ground through the walls of water. The Egyptians soon find that their confidence is going to be mired in mud and muck. The ground doesn't seem as firm for the Egyptians, does it? As it was for the Israelites. Verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And the Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. 
The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. God's victory is complete. The Hebrew people entering a new phase of their history. Once they're existing as an enslaved people, now free, they are sojourners in a land of mystery. God is present and in control and with them in both and through both. When God works in such marvelous and miraculous ways to redeem his people, the only proper response is gratitude, wonder, and belief. Verse 30. So the Lord saved Israel on that day from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore of the sea. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord had exercised over the Egyptians, they feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Mm. Again, in chapter 14, there's this mingling of God's mercy and his wrath, his steadfast love, and his justice. I was encouraged this week at prayer meeting. By the way, there's a really amazing revival going on at Asbury Seminary down south right now. And you want to know one of the keys to every revival that's ever happened in the world. They can pinpoint one particular key uh, common feature to every revival. You know what it is? Prayer. Prayer. I was at prayer meeting on Wednesday night listening to Daryl share a devotional. And it just encouraged my heart. He was sharing with uh, all of us what he talks to our students about each week at Bible quizzing. And I loved this, and I asked his permission, and he gave it to me. He said, I can share it. He said this, quote, The Bible is true. God is real. And the sooner you realize this or figure it out, the better off you will be. End quote. <laughs> oh, such powerful, simple truth put in such a succinct and amazing way. So true. This is not just some foreign God. Then we open the pages. This is the same God today. This God who parted the seas, who set his people apart, who freed him from the Egyptians, who rescued his people. He is the same God today, yesterday, today, and forever. What a wonderful thing. And, and I tell you today as your pastor, and maybe you would all could affirm this, maybe not, I don't know, maybe some of you get this. But for me, friends, maybe for many of us, it's a lifelong struggle to learn and to trust the God who still calls his people and works in mighty ways through them to make himself known to others. The God who parts the seas. The God who takes care of our enemies. The God who makes a way in the wilderness. The same God. As our team comes, I just want to share a few reflections or takeaways from this text. There were many this week, but I tried to wrap them up into just eight quick ones, and we'll go through them quickly so we can sing. The first is this, the same God who called us out and set us apart, the same God that called out and set apart the Israelites is doing it today. He's doing it with his church. The second, being called out means that we've been given purpose. We are called out we have purpose. God dwells within us. He works through us. He calls us to love, to live, to lead or serve in this world that he has planted us in. The third, holiness looks like participating with exuberance and joy in the mission that God has given us and inviting others to come along. Come and see. It's one of the great invitations of scripture, right? Come and see. Four, God will lead us. He doesn't call us to do, us, do this alone. He indwells us with, with his spirit and empowers us to love and serve others. Five, we shine most brightly when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, not 
our opponents. Six, we are most effective when we celebrate and share in his victories rather than identify or complain about threats. Seven, often we only need to be silent, walking by faith, trusting in the work and the words of God. And eight, in this one, Jesus is victorious. He is building his church, and one day, maybe not today, but someday, maybe soon, we'll look back, realize, and celebrate his wonderful and complete victory. But while we wait today, we can confidently and boldly live in its reality. Pray with me. Lord, you are victorious. Lord, there are things in our lives that need to come down. There are idols, Lord, that we look to to give us comfort and security in this world. When we're feeling lost, when the mystery is overwhelming and overcoming us, we turn to fear. Sometimes we turn to doubt. Lord, we want to live by faith. We can't always see. And you tell us, Lord, that those that can't see are blessed. So help us. Father, give us faith to be strong and give us courage to be weak. Help us lay down our lives as living sacrifices for you. Surrender to one another, loving, caring, and serving, even when it's scary, even when it's hard. May we remember that you are with us, and you are with us victoriously. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.